Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Chris Munn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Awesome to have you. So you've been on fire on Twitter. I've been following you. I've watched what you said. It's been really interesting to follow you. What was your kind of start to your journey in the entrepreneurial space? Yeah, so originally, I guess the first foray into it was I was working at an oil pipeline company. And I worked in their corporate development mergers and acquisitions group. And so we did a lot of buying of assets. So whether that be trying to buy up small businesses or just trying to buy assets that belong to another business, that was my job. So I did that every day for two, three years. I learned a lot about the space and it kind of opened my mind into, okay, acquiring assets, acquiring small businesses, things like that. And so the first thing I did while I was still working there actually was that I bought an apartment building in Michigan. That's where I'm originally from. And so that kind of got me started. It's been a good investment for me, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do full-time. So that's kind of how segued into buying businesses. So it kind of just all started you know, from a job, really. That, that's really funny. So you actually started in real estate. A lot of people that I talk to who start in real estate sort of love it. Unless it goes terribly wrong, they kind of love it. Why didn't you just stick with real estate? That's too passive. So it was like, I mean, you can definitely grow it into a business, but it's almost all deal searching. Like you're just searching for deals all the time because the actual management of the asset, you usually shift over to someone else to do. So once the management aspect is shifted over, there's like nothing to do. You're just kind of sitting on your hands. And the way I was buying properties or that I like to buy properties, that market in a way kind of dried up just because there was so much money coming into the market over the last five years or so that the strategy that I had was just kind of... It wasn't really viable anymore. So the time between deals was too long. And so I was like, yeah, it's not something that's like an everyday thing. I got to find something to do. You wanted the action. What was kind of the next step? What was the first kind of real business that you bought? So I left my job in 20... 18, I want to say. Yeah, 2018. And I still had two apartment buildings by that point. And so I was kind of looking around at B2B businesses. I really enjoy the B2B space. I learned a lot about it and like some of the kind of market dynamics of business to business type ventures. So in February 2020, we finally closed on a small commercial janitorial, commercial cleaning company. In Florida, we were looking kind of around the Southeast and in the US, there are some states that are really business friendly and some states that aren't. So we had kind of targeted some business states that were pretty friendly. And so we found something in Florida through a broker. And that's kind of how my journey started. Janitorial and why, like, (laughs) there's so many questions about that. Why janitorial and also why B2B? Because I actually, by the way, totally agree. I've always been a B2B guy, and B2C is always totally like, frankly, it seems like it's just such a huge battle. What attracts you to B2B? 
Well, so B2B, I think you can convey value better in B2B. Like B2B is all about the bottom line, right? So someone's always looking at, okay, does this save me money? Does this make me money? Does this prevent me? Or does this allow me to do something else in my business? And so we like that about B2B. We find B2B is a little bit more sticky. And like sometimes the biz won't come up for a year or five years or something like that. And you won't have to compete going forward. And on top of that, B2B is a space where, at least for us, we feel like it's pretty low temperature. So what we were doing with the commercial cleaning is kind of like your home, you're in Canada. So your snow care or your snow removal is low temperature. As long as the job gets done, you don't really think about it. You don't, it's not a thing on your mind every day. It's not like an active purchase where you're paying every, even though you're paying for each snow removal, it doesn't feel like, oh yeah, here I am buying clothes online again, where I feel like that's a, a different mentality. And so we like low temperature businesses and that's kind of where we're focused. I love that. I never heard that phrase, low temperature businesses. It's a really good way to put it because you're not doing something that people are seeing or thinking about all the time. It's just kind of happening in the background yeah. and you're getting paid for it. Yeah. And on top of that, it's low temperature, but we have a touch point with the customer every day. So even though we may not interact with the customer every day, if we're in their building or in their space every day, we have the opportunity to see things that a vendor who may come in once a month or once a quarter may not see. So when we see that their floors need to be rewaxed, or if we see that their carpet needs to be cleaned, or we see that their parking lot needs to be power washed, we can usually tell the customer that before they it comes up on their radar, right? So it's low temperature and we get to have touch points with the customers almost 300 times a year. So that's what we'd like most. That's awesome. That's so yeah. cool. I actually I talk to my salespeople about something similar. So we sell a product that is similar. It's B2B and it's something that just kind of happens on and on. But what I always encourage my salespeople to do is check in at least once every few weeks or once a month. And it's not just, I mean, A, want to make sure the customer is satisfied, but B, if you have those constant touch points, you're able to see what can we upsell, what can we cross sell, yeah. what are they going to do in six months or a year from now? So yeah. it's so valuable to do yeah. that. And a lot of times what we sell on the front end is not very high margin, like our nightly cleans or whatever, but the stuff we can upsell, like I said, like any floor work, any power washing, things like that, they're very high margin. And that's like where we can make our bread and butter. So it's always beneficial to us to get in there and see the customers because we can you know, go around, walk around, point out, say, hey, you should probably get that floor redone. It looks like it hasn't been done in a while. And that's a sell for us at good margin. And that's how we can maintain our business. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Everyone who buys a business says that buying a business is really hard. And we see this on Twitter all the time. People that talk about hold codes and roll-ups buying a business, it might look easy, but it's really hard. But then those same people will say it's way easier than building a business. So which is it? What makes buying a business hard, but easier than building a business? Yeah, sure. So for me, I think that all right, 90% of startups fail, right? That's pretty much a fact. But there's something called the Lindy effect, I believe it's called. And it's like, however long something gone on in the past, you can sort of expect it to go on that much longer in the future. So if you buy a business that's been around for 20 years, you can expect if you run it reasonably well to last 20 years into the future. That's not foolproof. That's not bulletproof. But 
that's a lot higher hit rate than it is with starting your own business. When starting a business, you don't even know if what you're providing customers will want or want at the price that you're providing it for. There's absolutely no proof of that. And in the startup world all the time, you hear about product market fit and you have to find product market fit and then you can scale. Well, if you buy a business that's been around for 20 years, there's no question about product market fit. There's question about how big it can scale, but there's no question that there are customers who are willing to pay for this product or service. And so I think you get that part out of the way. Now, there are other factors you don't get to... It's not your culture, right? Whatever's been around for 20 years that you come in and buy, you have to try to ingrain that into your portfolio. And you can't just say, oh, like this is the way we do everything at our company. You guys need to switch over. It's not that easy. There are things that have been ingrained in that company for 20 years and you're absorbing that. I guess it's kind of like adopting a kid versus having a kid. Like when you adopt a kid that's 10, they probably learned a lot of things that you may not teach them. But you know, when you have a kid, then you know, you can instill your own values. Now, I'm sure there are challenges with both, but I think the hard part is out of the way for you or the hardest part is out of the way for you when you buy. Yeah, the hardest and maybe also the most unknown. Because as you said, product market fit, a company that's been around for 5 years is not really a question. You know it's going to fit the market. The challenge there is, can you scale it? Can you scale the culture? Can you sell more? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so can you give an example, whether it's this janitorial company or something else, where you actually bought a business and you encountered challenges and then kind of how you solve them? Yeah, I mean, there are always cultural challenges and people challenges, really. I have stories. I know people in the business world have stories of you buy a business... There's a key part, like we had a key person in the business, first business we bought, who just did not want to be there anymore. They kind of felt like they were looked over for some roles with the previous owner and they just had a bad taste in their mouth. And they were key for us. And so, you know, we tried to do what we could to salvage the situation, but we quickly realized it wasn't salvageable. So we had to let that person go and move on. And in the beginning, that can be. Like that's something that when you buy a business, you have to worry about, right? Like on day one or day 10, is somebody critical while you're trying to get your arms around, hey, what's this whole operation? Is somebody critical just going to say, hey, I'm out the door? And you can't predict that. Like you can't account for that all the time because you never truly know a business until you're in it, until you're doing it. So when that person left, like there was some panic and who's going to do this job? But it's better than keeping that an unhappy, disgruntled person around. That that kind of just ruins morale even further. So the people and the values and the trauma or baggage that they carry from the previous ownership, whatever that may be, good or bad, is something that you're gonna have to face like head on day one. There's no getting around that. And how much do you think about culture? So I'll give you an example. Like one thing that we talked about before the mic seated up was diversity and focusing on diversity in the workspace and kind of what, what role it plays. Is that something that you would look for in a business before buying it? Or do you say, well, you know, I can inject that afterwards? It's not something that we necessarily look for in a business, but it's definitely something that we try to instill once we have it. Like currently we have 
a bunch of women who are general managers in our company, which is great, which you don't see a lot. It's very male dominated small business space. A lot of the owners are male. And so to me, that's not optimal. Like it can work that way, but it's not the way to get the best product and to get the best value out of something. So that's part of what's important to me is bringing a different perspective to the table. Your experience and what you've been through in your life allows you to look at problems and solve problems differently. I think that's very important. So the more diverse voices I can have in the room, I think the better outcome I get as a leader. And that may be true or not. That's just my opinion on it. So that's how I try to live. And that's how I try to think about my businesses when I go in. It's like, okay, how can I get some different voices? And diversity can mean experience too. Like everybody's been there for 20 years. Why don't we get somebody young in here that doesn't have this experience and get a fresh perspective? So it comes in all shapes and sizes, but I think it's very important if you want to grow your company and kind of get out of the same old, same old. It's so important. And I would also imagine, especially because it sounds like you're buying like traditional businesses, as you said, B2B, a lot of the stuff that they do, the culture, they've been around for a long time. It can be very vanilla. Like, you know, everything is done the same way. Well, why? Because Keith did it like this back in 1994. And it's like, all right, well, some things have changed since then. So what can we do differently? Yep. That's exactly right. So yeah, that's super important to me. And I think that you're not going to grow if you don't get out of that mindset. So that's what we're not only here to buy businesses, but we're here to grow. And that's the most important part for us. Absolutely. So let's get into some of the specifics. I'm curious to know, like, what does Fairfield own today? What's the rationale? If you want to maybe take us through one or two of the acquisitions, can you give us an example? Yeah. So like I said, we're primarily focused B2B in the Southeast United States. So people looking for deals in Georgia, South Carolina, Florida kind of area. That's kind of where we're focused right now. So today, I mean, that's exclusively what we are. We think that, and especially in the commercial janitorial space, like in in the Tampa area, we believe that's like a, it's a huge market. And what we like to call it is facility management. So not just you're all right, going and do janitorial, but if the person needs floor work, if the person needs window cleaning, if the person needs duct cleaning, the person needs power washing, we want to be able to serve those customers. So that's our goal right now. So the goal right now is to just acquire customers. And so we have a deal that we're doing right now where we should be closing sometime in the next two or three weeks where we're going to acquire a bunch more customers. And the idea around that is simply what I just said. Like you get in with the customers, you say, okay, hey, here's what we do for you on a nightly basis, but I'm going to come out every Tuesday, just check in with you, see if everything's going okay. The customer loves that. That's great. But what we're really doing, is going and seeing if we can upsell the customer on any type of services that they may need. And since I have that touch point with the customer every week, which is probably more than any other vendor has, we feel like that's a unique advantage that we have over someone who they may just you know see a problem, pick up the phone and call. We want them to think of us first if they have a problem, but we really want to identify the problem first. So at the end of this year, we would hope to be at about run rate of like a $5 million company, but we have plans and efforts to grow a lot bigger than that. I saw, I think on Twitter, you said your target is 50 million. 
Yeah, that's the goal. Fifty million. So that's it, man. Um, you'll, you, yeah, you'll get there soon. So I'm looking at your site right now. So I see industry focus, commercial, janitorial, landscaping, waste management. So it seems like yeah. a lot of what you're doing is in the kind of I don't know, for lack of a better word, like property management services. So is it more of a roll-up strategy? Is that what you're doing where you're taking one sector and just buying all the businesses you can in that sector? That's exactly right. So what we're closing, should be closing, knock on wood, this month is exactly that. It's the same kind of business, same geography, same kind of clientele, just different customers. So really all we want to do is buy up customers, almost like sales. In sales, all you do is buy the customers, buy the book of business. Right. And then you can try to upsell them or sell them on your products. That's what we want to do here. It's just rolling up different companies in the space with the intent to just acquire more customers. And once we acquire those customers, we can try to upsell them and get them on higher margin products so that we can extract the most value we can from each customer. Because that's what I think, what we think people in the industry don't do a great job of. There are businesses who do a great job of going out and getting the customers but we don't think that they do necessarily a great job of getting that average customer order, let's call it up. And like, what else can we sell this customer on? And when usually when you get the average customer order up, your margins increase as well because you're selling them on, on higher margin products. So that's kind of our goal for right now. Yeah. We call it ARPU average revenue per user or average revenue per customer. Yeah. So, okay. So, let me ask you a question then. So what you're doing is you don't necessarily care as much about the way they operate their business because you can replace all that, right? Like if they're buying their chemicals here, their brooms here, yeah. they're hiring people like this. That actually doesn't matter. What you care about more is the customer. So do you run like your pro forma and say, okay, these guys have, I don't know, 10 customers, each customer's generating $10,000 a year. And so we're willing to pay X. And it would take us if we hired a sales team this long to get these number of customers and it's obviously more expensive to do that. Is that kind of the math you're doing? Yeah, that's exactly right. So while it is way faster to acquire the customers just by going out and buying businesses, right? Or or buying a book of business from a owner. That to us is the fastest way to grow. Now, it's not the most sustainable way to grow, like you said, because with those customers, you acquire those employees. There are a lot of nuances that come along that you have to deal with versus, like you said, if you had a sales team, I can staff this customer exactly how I want. I can service it. Because even when you buy the customers, you don't necessarily service the customer. They may service the customer differently than you would. Like Anybody can say, oh, well, we'll come out here three times a week and here's what we'll do and blah, blah, blah. That may not be the way that we would want to do it. But when you acquire the customer, you kind of have to take that on. So those are some kind of nuances that you do have to deal with and some of the cultural things that you have to deal with, which would not occur if they were just organic customers to us. So organic customers are the best because we can kind of get them on the right path and get them on our path from day one, but it's the slowest route to growth. So we kind of try to find a happy medium. We would like to acquire more customers than we do organically, but we still want that organic piece because it's the most sustainable way to acquire customers. Yeah. You got to have more than one channel if you're going to scale. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So you tweeted something recently that I loved about negotiation. And one thing you said was too many people think you get further by talking when it's actually the one who stays silent that can often get further. 
So can you talk a little bit about negotiation and kind of how you learned to negotiate? Yeah. So I really learned, like I mentioned that job that I had, I really learned a ton of negotiation, just sitting in like boardrooms all day with lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, but I would have to sit in there with lawyers and you would find that the person who was the most talkative was the most emotional, always lost. I would just sit there and be like baffled. So I think there's, it's so misunderstood the art of negotiation. A lot of it, like you said, it's just about hearing what the other person is saying. Like negotiation to me is mostly hearing what you're saying, taking that in and trying to regurgitate that back to you in a way that suits me best. Right. So whatever you say, I'm like, okay, John wants, I'm listening to John. He may not say it directly, but indirectly, he's saying that he cares about his legacy. He cares a little bit about price. He cares about his employees. Okay. How can I regurgitate that back to John, but do it in a way that's advantageous to me? So I've heard everything you said. You've heard nothing that I've said. So you're telling me all the information I'm gathering it. And then when I spit it back to you, you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. And that's only because you did all the talking. I let you do all the talking. Now, some people know that and it's not as easy to get them to talk. And then you kind of have more difficult negotiations, but you'll find a lot of times you take somebody to dinner or you play golf with them and they'll tell you a ton of stuff. And it may not all be direct, right? But it can be indirect conversation that you learn a lot about. And we have to do that with people that we're buying businesses from. So they care about different things. Some people care strictly about price. Some people care about their legacy. Some people care about the culture of their business. And some people care about just going and getting on a boat and being done. And so whatever that is, we try to mirror that in our offer to them and our terms to them so that they feel like they're getting a great deal, right? Like they're getting exactly what they want. But our DNA and our ask are all intertwined in that ask. And so we feel like that's a win-win for both. But we want to have more information when we make our offer than the seller does when they make theirs. Yeah, that's so bang on. And there's two things that I was thinking. So a great piece of advice that I got in negotiation years ago, actually, I was watching an interview with Barbara Walters. And she said... Her best interviews and one of her best interview skills is that she's totally fine with awkward silence. Mm -hmm. And so she'll ask a question and the person clearly doesn't want to answer. And all she does is stay silent. And at some point, someone's going to break. Someone's going to talk and it's not going to be her. And usually the first thing that person says is exactly what you wanted them to say. They're going to tell you the answer. So staying silent and being okay with uncomfortable silence is so important. And frankly, it's not natural because when there's silence, you want to talk. Yeah, you feel a need to interject. Silence is very awkward for people and people don't know how to deal with that. But I've never heard Barbara Walters say that, but I'm a big 60 Minutes fan. I used to love her and Ed Bradley. I felt like they were like really good interviewers. And yeah, they would just, like you said, they would ask something, they get a BS answer and then, you know, just kind of sit there then of course a person that feels they need to expound on that and then you get what you want. Right. So that's a lot of that. It's a lot of just being quiet and sitting on the other side of the table. You want to be likable, but at the same time, you don't want to be so verbose that the other side has all the information and you're, you left a meeting and all you did was talk. That's never a good sign in a negotiation. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story. I actually saw this happen. So there's an interview. Uh, this is the most I've ever talked about Barbara Walters, but there's an interview with Barbara Walters interviewing Macaulay Culkin. You know who that is, Macaulay? Yes. Of course, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Home Alone. Okay. So Home Alone, exactly. Home Alone. So Macaulay Culkin, for those who don't know, Home Alone, and obviously grew up and became kind of a, went through all kinds of problems as a child star. But she asked him a question. And I remember it was something like, why did you do this stupid thing? Whatever he did. And he actually sat there and stumbled. And he sat there. And the first thing he said was, oh, that's a, that's a hard question. And she said nothing. And he said, almost like uncomfortably hard. I almost don't want to answer that. And she literally stays silent for like a minute. There's just a minute where she's just staring at him. And eventually, he just answers the question. I remember watching that. And this was around the time I had seen her kind of give her behind the scenes of how she does interviews. And that's a perfect example. People will actually stumble and say things. But if you just stay silent, eventually they will speak. And the other thing, and I don't know if you've read this book, have you read the Never Split the Difference book? Yes. Yes, Okay. Chris Foss. Chris Foss, yeah. Are there lessons that you took from there? Oh, absolutely. I read that book when I was at the company. And the mirroring thing is like a thing he's big on. It's like mirroring what the other person says. He does it in a more in a faster cadence, like he'll mirror back exactly what you say as you say it. But the whole mirroring what someone wants, like that's all from his book. It's just like the person feels so validated when they hear back what they told you. It's like a human emotional mind hack. So that's completely from that. Yeah, I recommend that book to anyone who wants to know more about negotiation. It's probably the best book there is. Yeah, the mirroring. And the other thing he said, I remember was, he has this thing where he goes, slow down. Yeah. Because yeah, people yeah. are they they get anxious in themselves, especially what he was doing was like hostage negotiation yeah, now. But, FBI, yeah. but in, yeah. in any negotiation, if you control the tempo and the cadence, there's yeah. just a lot more you can also build camaraderie, you can build a better interaction. Yeah, it's I mean, it's no different than like I'm a I'm a big basketball fan, but like the best point guards always play at their speed. It doesn't matter like if the defense is pressing them or the defense is laid back. They don't care what you do. They're going to play at their pace. And because they play at their pace, they're always comfortable. Like you're the one that's uncomfortable because you're playing. Now you're playing their game. So it's just like a mastery, but it takes time because naturally, like, yeah, when there's silence, you want to jump in. When things are moving too slow, you want to speed them up or whatever. But yeah, having your own cadence and your own pace and moving at that, it always keeps you comfortable so that you can be in the best place for whatever you want, your negotiation. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was biographies. You shared a thread with nine biographies. I think almost all of them were bang on. I love them all. What are your favorites and what have you learned? So if I had to recommend biographies, I'd say two really come to mind. One is called Why Do White Guys Have All the Fun? Or Why Do White Guys Get to Have All the Fun? Why do white guys have all the fun? Yeah. So it's by Reginald Lewis. So Reginald Lewis was the first black man to buy a billion dollar company. He bought a, he came up in the mergers and acquisitions, LBO, big thing in the eighties. But he is like from Baltimore, inner city kid from Baltimore. He went to a historically black college, which I did as well. And then he was a lawyer for a bit, but then he went on to do mergers and acquisitions and the book was very inspirational for me. I read it in college because I didn't know you could do this stuff. I didn't know that this type of thing existed. And it's kind of what we're talking about, representation and diversity, which is important to me. Like, If I didn't read this book, I probably wouldn't 
know that I could do some of the stuff that I'm doing today. But his story is really inspirational. And he, I probably read that book every two or three years just because it was so impactful for me. He died really young, which was unfortunate. But the time he was here, he did a lot, a lot, a lot of big deals in the business world and made great money. Did like his first deal on his own. It was like a 90, 90 X return on his investment and his investors investment. So, wow. That's a really good book for me, an inspirational book. It says here he was the richest or one of the richest black men in history in, in yes. America. And actually, yeah. he died super young. He died, what, at 50 or 51? 50. Yeah, he was yeah. like 50 years old. So he died really young. But there's there's a museum of him in Baltimore that I still need to go check out. But yeah, I read that in college and I loved it. And I've been reading it every few years since. So that was I've probably been reading that book 15 years now. So that's a great book. And then the second book is Walt Disney and American Original by Bob Thomas. I think that book is like from the 90s, but it talks all about Walt Disney. That's about his life, really. But he was just super extraordinary, man. Like the things he could accomplish, the focus and the drive that he had, it kind of reminded me of what people now consider Steve Jobs. It's like ultra focus. Walt Disney was focused on doing things that had never been done before. And he would motivate a team to be able to do it. And like the way he put sound into, he was just super, super focused on putting sound onto his cartoons and the way that he did it and the story arc of princesses. And it was just so into the details of what makes Disney Disney. And it really hit me because I read it at a time when Disney was started in like the 20s or the 30s or something. And I read it at a time where my niece was, she was probably two or three. And she was like super into Minnie Mouse and Mickey Mouse. And it really just hit me that this creation that this guy made in the 20s, my niece who was born in 2014, is obsessed with. It kind of blew my mind that it's still around, but it was all the imprint of Disney and all that he's done. And he didn't have an easy life, especially growing up. And he actually got rejected from being a comic. He drew comics for like the Kansas City newspaper and he got fired because he wasn't good at it. And so to go from that, like that obviously would have crushed most people. But he turned that into the Disney empire and like every cartoon movie we know today. So super crazy story of Disney. A story of resilience, which, which I always appreciate and like. Yeah. I agree with both of those. I think that the Disney story is really interesting. And there was a movie uh, a few years ago, Tom Hanks called Saving Mr. Yeah. Banks, which is yeah. probably a Disney version yeah. of Disney. I'm sure it, yeah. Was, yeah. it was much harder than that. But yeah, like the idea that somebody would go through as many setbacks as he did yeah. and still keep pushing, pushing, you know, it shows you the power of persistence. And it's also, it's interesting how so many of the people who are ultra successful aren't necessarily the best. In fact, in many cases, they're not the best. It's the ones that stick with it and are most persistent. And what I love about these biographies, and there are more on your list, I mean, I think they're all really great recos, is that it shows you the power of persistence over just sheer talent. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely am a believer of that. Like talent will get you so far, but I'm like a big golfer. And my favorite golfer is Tiger, like most people. And when people ask me, I always say like, they're absolutely more talented golfers than Tiger was. Like they're better putters, 
they're better drivers of the golf ball, but his persistence, the mental aspect of it, like nobody was close to him. And that's why he was the best. So like Tom Brady in football, American football, like he's not the most talented quarterback, but he wins the most because his mental preparation and that side of it is the best. And so that's what separates people at the top, not talent or, I mean, Steve Jobs got fired from Apple. Like he went back and was like, I'm determined to do this. And then Apple's the most valuable company in the world now. Like that's not talent. That's just like, I mean, it could be dumb persistence. Like you could say, I'm sure people, some people told him he was dumb for going back. But when people believe in something and believe in a goal and a mission and they're super persistent, like what's to stop them? Yeah, it's so true. And the difference between, as you said, people can be persistent doing the wrong thing. And at that point, it's very much about self-realization. I mean, as a successful entrepreneur, you need to be persistent and do something and not quit. But you also need to have the self-awareness of what you're doing is right or wrong. And that can be a combination of mentors or these different self-evaluation techniques. But you've got to be willing to kind of push through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not going to be easy. And I mean, that's on Twitter. That's usually like the pushback I get the most of anything I tweet. It's like, oh, you make it sound easy. And I'm like, it's not... Nothing worthwhile is easy. It's 140 characters. So I have to shorten it up. But with persistence, like there are people who have done way far greater things than I have for sure, just on sheer persistence and the lack of willingness to give up. Yeah, absolutely. There's one more book I'll throw in. There's a guy named Kirk Krikorian, famous guy for, I think he basically invented the modern Las Vegas Strip. It was him and the mafia. But yeah, so his, there's a, a biography called The Gambler. The author's name is William C. Rempel. But the biography of Kirk Krikorian is really amazing. I'm pretty sure... Actually, kind of a funny story behind this biography. So it's an unauthorized biography. And most of the information comes from divorce papers. So he wow. revealed a whole bunch of stuff during divorce wow. proceedings. And the author took that. And that's where he got a lot of the information Wow. From. That's awesome. I like unauthorized biographies, though. Those are the best. Yeah, I because I you know want, most of it is true. Yeah, I don't want the subject to have his input or her input. I think it dilutes it, but I'll have to check this out. So I want to kind of finish up here with what you're looking at buying. So you mentioned that you tweeted out... I don't know if this was more of a joke or just a thought experiment, but you said you wanted to maybe buy a business in the education space. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so... I don't have any kids, but I'm friends with a bunch of people who obviously do. And I've noticed in major cities, this wasn't so much the case in Detroit when I grew up, but in major cities, the amount of money that people spend on their children is like insane. Like I have a friend, a close friend. We went to Detroit public schools together. So like regular run of the mill public school. And he's got a kid who's like going to kindergarten. And they have like a kindergarten advisor who they hire to like help the kid get into a few kindergartens, right? And like a certain amount of school or a certain criteria school. So they hire this advisor that helps them do that. Well, first they send them to a preschool that's like a feeder preschool. I guess like kids have to go to certain preschools in order to be able to get in a certain kindergarten. But after you go to the feeder preschool, then you have to get an advisor to go to kindergarten. And then after you get that advisor to go to kindergarten, you go to kindergarten. And so by the time the kid is five, like they've spent probably 100000 to 150000 on their education already, right? And they're going to private school. 
until at least college. So seeing that, I was like, the margins have to be ridiculous in this industry. It's very sticky. And what I like most about it is there's, especially for families with money, when it comes to their kid, like there's no, there's no limit. There's like, okay, if this is the best school, it doesn't matter if it costs $30,000 more than the second best school It's the best. So I have to send my kids there. So it's something that I definitely like have on my radar because I'm just like this. I don't think that trend is going to stop like the competitiveness of the schooling, especially here in America. I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but it's the exact same. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So like, it's like a big competition to get these kids into like these schools and like, like even the advisor to get somebody in kindergarten. To me, that's a joke. I can't even imagine paying somebody to get somebody into kindergarten. It's real. I will say that's pretty excessive. So I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So my three-year-old is now just getting into... She's going to junior kindergarten next year. And we've already done the nursery thing, which is its own thing. We're pretty normal. I mean, she's going to private school, but like we're not sort of too crazy on any of this stuff, I don't think. But yeah, like the prices of just going to a private school junior kindergarten is insane. I mean, it's yeah. I never would have known that it's this expensive if I wasn't a parent. Yeah. like It's more than I paid to go to college. Oh, so, far. Yeah. So that fact, I'm just like, there's a ton of money in this business. It's kind of like the wedding industry, I guess. Like it's an emotional attachment and the amount that you'll spend is now it's competitive. But if you can get in and get a foothold in it, then you can make a lot of money. So it's something that I definitely have my eye on. It it kind of blew my mind how much people were spending. So I said, hey, you know, I gotta. I got to dig more into this. So I've been looking at a few things, but like there's, for example, here in California, they have daycares that are completely like in parks. So they don't have any rent expense because it doesn't rain. They just have it completely in a park every day. It might only be for like three hours. And those are like businesses and the people pay extraordinarily high amounts of money to send their kids to like daycare in the park. It's yeah. crazy. So similar stories, some good, good friends, right? Just our neighbors down the street. They were telling us about the camp that their three-year-old goes to. And we did the math. I didn't want to do it in front of them because I didn't want to offend them. But I did the math in my head of what they were paying. And the kid goes for four hours a day total. It's like nine to one, let's say. And they get lunch there. And I did the math and it worked out to $175 a day. If you paid for the whole summer. And I thought $175 a day, you're paying the counselor... 17 bucks an hour, 18 bucks an hour. And so, right. and that's to watch 10 kids. So right. the margin on this is insane. Yeah. I'm like, probably after the second kid, you're making money, which is right. crazy. So, I mean, that's exactly what you find. It's like the tuition of one kid in the class covers like 70% of the teacher's salary in some of these schools. And I'm just like, that's insane because there are 15 kids in a class. So yeah, it's yeah. definitely something that I'm keeping an eye out on for. So That's so cool, man. I love it. I love it. Okay. So where can we find you and what are you going to be talking about on Twitter? What can people expect from you on Twitter? Yeah. So I try to talk about my journey a lot and just the things I experienced. And that's kind of what I want to share more of. So I mean, my Twitter is ChrisXMunn, M-U-N-N. And it's just me on this journey of building these businesses, buying these businesses and building them. And so that's kind of what I hope to convey and hopefully inspire, you know, maybe some younger people who don't 
didn't know that this existed or don't know anything about it to at least be inquisitive. I mean, I can point them in the right direction on how to get started. That's kind of kind of my goal on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks so much yeah. for uh, joining me today, man, and sharing your story. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a review on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. 